This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Medicine Path Podcast is made possible through the generous support of our patrons on patreon.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, subscriptions begin at just $2 a month, which gives you access to the full podcast archives, including exclusive bonus episodes and podcast extras. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with yoga therapist and educator Amy Wheeler. Amy says that her life purpose has been to change the way people view mental and physical health by educating them about the interrelationship between the ancient philosophy of yoga, psychology, and public health. For over 25 years, Amy has been a consultant to elite-level athletes, peak performers, and healthcare organizations. Amy has studied yoga and yoga therapy in India, Europe, and the United States, including extensive study in the tradition of T. Krishnamacharya and TKV Desikachar. To find out more about Amy, please visit amywheeler.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Amy Wheeler on The Medicine Path. I'm here with Amy Wheeler from 
optimal state. And Amy, I want to thank you for joining me today and uh, giving us some of your time. Thank you for having me, Brian. I've been really looking forward to meeting you in person. I've been watching you for years. Yeah, well, likewise. And so I'm excited to actually get a chance to talk to you. Um, so I guess one of the reasons why you know I first became aware of you is because you're what I would consider maybe like second or third generation of American teachers who have studied with TKV Deskachar at the Krishmachari Yoga Mandaram. And so part of this uh, kind of younger wave of yoga therapists in the West, um, and you might know I already had um, like Larry Payne, Gary Kraftsau, Richard Miller on the podcast. And I see you and maybe I'll include myself in your peer group. We're part of a, like a younger generation who's keeping these teachings alive. Um, and so I, I, you know, I always love to hear that kind of yoga teacher origin story. Like how did you get interested in yoga at first? What drew you to it? When I first came to yoga, I had been a track and field athlete, a heptathlete, which is high jump, long jump, shot put hurdles, 800 meters, 200 meters, and javelin. Wow. <laughs> so I came to, to yoga from a very athletic perspective. And, you know, like a lot of people, we, we started in the body. And so I did that for about a year, a lot of vinyasa flow, you know, Iyengar, that type of thing where I could really feel my muscles working. And then after about a year, I, I thought, well, I want to go to India and see what this is all about. And, and so I went to the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandram in 2001 for a three-week, three um, it was called the Silver Jubilee. And it was basically an anniversary, I think a 25th anniversary of Krishnamacharya's passing. Mm -hmm. And so for three weeks, we got to study with, you know, all the top people, you know, 10 hours a day from KYM, including Mr. Desikachar. And I fell in love. It was at that moment that I was like, oh, this is not about having an athletic body and a fit body. They were chanting, they were doing pranayama, they were doing meditation, they were doing deep philosophical lectures on the Yoga Sutra and the Bhagavad Gita. And I was like, oh, I am so in. Mm. <laughs> so that was, you know, my my first, what I consider real yoga experience happened at the Silver Jubilee in Chennai. How did you end up there? If you were uh, participating in more kind of uh, physical asana type classes, how did you end up at the KYM in the first place? Well, I had heard that Mr. Iyengar's teacher and Patabi Joyce's teacher was Krishnamacharya. So I thought, well, I'll go to the source, mm. right? But what you find when you go to the KYM is that it's actually very, very different than Iyengar or Ashtanga. But I didn't know that. So I just thought I was kind of going to the source of Iyengar and, Ash and Patabi Joyce and Ashtanga, only to find something very, very different. Interesting. That's really similar to my story. Um, practicing Ashtanga Vinyasa, finding out after a time that it didn't really work for my body, and then having older Ashtanga teachers tell me, well, you should go check out Iyengar yoga because it's more therapeutic, but they had the same teacher. Going there and finding a completely different approach and then starting to get really curious. Well, if they had the same teacher, 
how is this possible that the styles are so different? And that got me interested in Krishnamacharya, which led me to Desukachar. So interesting. I, I think it's great that you went thinking that you might be getting some kind of strong physical practices, but were happy to find something new. Absolutely. I mean, I've always been a spiritual seeker and a philosophical thinker and kind of, you know, never really fit in with my peers because I, I was always wanting to hang out with people 20 years older than me <laughs> ever mm. since I was little. So it wasn't surprising to me that I fell in love with it so quickly within a, a day or two um, because it met so many of my needs beyond the physical body. Mm. So after that, uh, well, actually in that first uh, three-week program, did you ever get a chance to personally interact with Mr. Deskachar? Yes. So, you know, on the very first day I was walking to class and I saw this man who was running. He was looked like he was floating and he had a long white dhoti on and a, a simple green light green collared shirt. And I, and I thought, wow, that guy looks like he's floating across the street. And, and when I got into the first session, they introduced him as Mr. Desi Kachar. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, that's him. And he was so humble and so soft-spoken and there was no pomp and circumstance. He was not allowing anybody to, you know, touch his feet or worship or anything like that. And I, I really liked that about him, that he was just such a simple human being without all the image and, you know, all the asmita. Um, and then he gave us a meditation where he asked us to reflect on the um, relationship between responsibility and freedom. And so we, you know, we did some pranayama. He introduced the topic of reflection. We took about 15 minutes and then we all had to write down what, what our idea was about the relationship between freedom and responsibility. Then he went up on stage and read them and critiqued them. And I just really, really liked it. Um, so that was my first time being in his presence. And it wasn't a personal one-on-one -on -one interaction, but I've had many, many personal interactions with him uh, because I went back seven different times for anywhere between four and six weeks and was very, very fortunate to, you know, be invited into his home and study, study with him and his family. And, um, you know, one of the things about this younger generation of yoga slash yoga therapy uh, people in our tradition is that we got so much concentrated time, like, you know, eight and 10 hours a day where, you know, for 30 days in a row where different people from the family and high-level people like Dr. NC would come in and teach us. And when I talk to people like Larry Payne and some others, they might get three one-hour lessons in a week. Mm. So if they were there for, you know, six months or something, they may have gotten, you know, 20 lessons or something. And I think that there was this window in time where we got really, really fortunate to get a ton of really high quality time and high quality teachings with Mr. Deskshar and his family. Hmm. Now, just going back to that recollection, did you say that he was wearing a white goatee? 
Doty. Oh, Doty. I, could... <laughs> I think that, that threw me off. I was like, wow, I never seen him with any facial hair, but a Doty. Doty in a green shirt and yes. kind of seemingly floating across the road. Yeah, he was very graceful in his body. Yeah. At that time, yeah. I'm also interested in uh, this meditation slash reflection exercise that he had you do. So responsibility and freedom. How, like, what did he draw that from? Was that something that he was just maybe thinking about or did he reference the Yoga Sutra? I'm just curious, like, where that comes from. He did not. I mean, looking back at that three-week Silver Jubilee and knowing now what I know about what was going on. I mean, this was in 2001, but there was a um, a strong undercurrent, which I have now come to understand better, of who is going to take this lineage, who is going to take responsibility for it, and is is taking that responsibility for this tradition, this lineage, going to somehow impact anyone's freedom who decides to take this on, meaning you have to take care of the tradition or the lineage. You can't just, you know, not take care of it. And so I, I think those ideas, even in 2001, were starting to weigh on him. Mm. That what, What's going to happen now? Right. Because in taking responsibility for maintaining the integrity of the lineage, it would require a lot of personal sacrifice. And he had done that. He knew. He he said, "Don't don't become a yoga teacher. It's too hard." <laughs> so he <laughs> he really sacrificed his life for all of us to benefit. And he knew that whoever was going to take that over after him, I think he knew um, that it, it was going to require great sacrifice. Hmm. And so um, I think you said, was it over the next ten years you continued to go back? Yeah, I I fell in love. I I was I was a goner, and um, went back many many times to study with different programs and do you know four to six week internships at the KYM um, for yoga therapy and you know it. In spite of all the trips I made to India, they were coming over to the U.S. a lot too. So you know, for our yoga therapy program, we had six modules of twelve days each. So again, we just got this really potent, concentrated um, teachings given to us. And it, it was an amazing time. Hmm. So that's, I mean, 10 years is quite a lot of time to develop as a practitioner and teacher. Did your focus uh, shift? I'm interested, like, from where you started out with this kind of coming to yoga as a, as a jock to where you are now with your optimal state system and this strong focus on mental health. I'm interested in, in that journey and um, how you found your way to where you are now. Like what was most interesting to you at the KYM and in yoga and how that led to where you are now? For me, when I found the KYM and, and these teachings, um, everything I had ever loved suddenly came under one umbrella. Mm. So it's not that I developed into something else. I was like, oh my gosh, it's all here. I love the human physical body. I love anatomy. I love kinesiology. I love physiology. And 
I had a PhD in psychology before oh, I even did. went. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Before I even went to the KYM, I had done that, and I had been a sports psychologist for many Olympic teams and athletes. And and Descartes really liked that. He was very interested in that. Mm. Um, so the psychology piece. My father is a, a minister. And so I've always had a really strong faith and um, been very interested in God and the divine and specifically the mystics. So when I found KYM, it was like one thing took all the things I love and put it into a framework, the Yoga Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, that made sense to me. It just all worked. And so as I you know, kind of moved towards building the optimal state yoga therapy program, I was really able to see from all my years of psychology and kinesiology, because I'm still a kinesiology professor after, you know, 23 years now, Hmm. I could see how the psych and the kines were just beautifully mapped on to this system of yoga and, and how the gunas actually merge with polyvagal theory and how, um, you know, the somatic experience of trauma actually is explained through yoga, right? Like I could, in the Panchamaya model. So it, it still is, if you can't tell, super exciting to me. I'm like waving my hands all over right now when I'm mm. talking because it's such a miracle to me that it's all in one place. Yeah, well, that I really resonate with that. That's that's what it felt like for me too. It was like a a whole approach to life that included every aspect of life that I was interested in, that I held dear, and that's something that I couldn't find in my own culture. Everything was so segmented. You know, there was spirituality was over there, uh, physical exercise and sport was over here, psychology was there, and everything has been kind of um, dismembered over the years. I I think at one time in Western culture, it was more together. But uh, I think over time, we became such uh, specialists. Um, And so everything's like very fragmented and segmented. And I think it's starting to come back together a little more now in the West with things like uh, somatic psychotherapy and... um, yeah, maybe even a more spiritual approach to psychology with depth psychology and archetypal psychology, that kind of thing. So it's maybe starting to come back together. But then here's this tradition where it was never... uh, Well, I think in some respects, yoga was broken apart. um, But in this particular lineage, it's like the whole picture is is there and been preserved. Exactly. And and that's why I was so grateful that I kind of fell into this quite early in my yoga career because it, for me, it didn't have to be segmented off into just asana or, oh, those people, they're the meditators, you know, that at the KYM, there is this beautiful weaving of all the different tools of yoga where you're chanting while doing asana, as you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, where you're doing an active meditative reflection while even going for a walk in nature. And that's considered meditation, right? There the, the different ways you can adapt all the tools in the toolbox are just so cool to me. Mm. Okay. Well, this is a great opportunity um, speaking to you because you do have such a kind of um, Western scientific or psychological background. So you've, you've really got that foundation now. And you mentioned uh, 
polyvagal theory and the gunas. And just to take that example, could you talk a little bit about how um, theories that people are starting to come to in the West now are already present in yoga? So let's take polyvagal and the gunas. Could you talk a little bit about that and um, explain how they correlate? Sure. So one of the things I've tried to do with the optimal optimal state um, yoga therapy system is to help simplify the teachings. It took, you know, 20 years of study for me to really deeply understand them. And people can't travel to India seven times. They can't be away from their families for six weeks at a time. And, and there's so much good and useful stuff in here that needs to get out there. So I basically took the, the guna model and, and gave each one of the gunas, you know, a color, uh, you know, rajas, tamas, sattva, so that people from the West, they, they still will give honor to India and, and to the ancient teachings, but they will have a very simple language about, you know, how to communicate these concepts. So, hmm. for example, um, pitta, I taught it, you know, pitta vata kapha for 20 years at my university. And students, it just went right over their head. I could see their eyes glazing over. But as soon as I said, pitta means red zone, vata means white zone, kapha means blue zone. Now these kids are walking across campus and sattva is gold zone. Now these kids are walking across campus like, Dr. Wheeler, I'm in gold zone. Mm. You know, for 20 years, no kid ever told me they were in sattva. But -hmm. the moment I put it in a language and these simple colors that they could understand, they love it. They grasped onto it. So that's really been my thing is let's honor India. Let's be honest about where this came from. Let's give credit where credit is due, but let's put it in a simple form that Westerners can understand. So I think the same thing with polyvagal theory. I think this is the brilliance of what Stephen Porges and people like Marlisa Sullivan have, have done. They have taken some really complex topics and, and, concepts and really boiled them down into these simple graphs that people can understand. And it's just like wildfire now. You know, mm. I just yesterday I did a search, a Google search of polyvagal theory, and I found like 10 amazing graphics that describe it so beautifully that people had come up with um, and posted on my Facebook page. So I think the the beauty of what we're seeing now with the gunas and with polyvagal theory is how simple we've been able to translate that so that we can get the message out. And those people who want to study for 20 years, you know, have at it, but that doesn't mean a school kid in third grade in Arkansas can't also benefit, you know? Mm-hmm. So kind of back to your question, how, how do I see the, the gunas kind of interacting with, with polyvagal theory? Well, maybe oh. um, there, there may be some people out there who don't are familiar with the gunas yet. Okay. So maybe if you could just give a little brief intro to that model and what each of them maybe points toward or the qualities of each. Sure. So, you know, everything in the whole natural world is made up of, of what we call the five elements, you know, earth, water, fire, air, and space. It's very similar to traditional Chinese medicine and the five element theory. So when we take these five elements and start to combine them uh, to physical form and, and matter, when we combine earth and water in the body, we call that kapha. 
when we combine um, you know, when we have more fire, we call that more pitta in the body. And when we have more air and space, we say, oh, this person has a lot of vata. And every human being in their birth constitution has different uh, concentrations or amounts of earth and water or fire or air and space. So you've got the birth constitution in your body, um, but then you've also got your lifestyle and and how does your lifestyle impact how much fire you have? Like right now I'm having some coffee. I went and did a workout this morning. I had um, a sports site call right before you where I was very focused and fiery in my mind, right? Mm. So I've got a lot of fire going on today, right? So my lifestyle, depending on how I design it, can add more earth or water or fire or air or space. And, and when you have that, you can tend to get out of balance in all these different directions. So what we're trying to do, at least with the Optimal State Yoga Therapy Program, is help people to recognize when they're getting too much fire or when they're getting too much water and earth and feel like they're stuck in the mud or when they have you know, transported up into the stratosphere, into air and space, and they're really you know, distracted and not grounded. Spaced out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so that's how we see the five elements show up in the body. We call it vata, pitta, kapha. But potentially, when, when he or she or they talk about the gunas um, of the mind, now they take those five elements and they condense it down to rajas, tamas, sattva. Rajas being more air and space and fire, kind of very energized and excited or fiery or um, expansive mind. That would be Rajas versus Tamas. The opposite would be the earth and the water. And this would be the heavy, lethargic, Tamasic, cloudy thinking. So Patanjali specifically referring to the gunas as, as they show up in the mind and that we don't want to be too far into the Rajas direction, but we don't want to be too far into the Tamas direction. We actually want to pacify the Rajas and Tamas, let them go so that we are just left simply with what we call sattva or this pure state of consciousness and clarity and being really. Hmm. So now would it be, do you think it's incorrect to say that sattva is a state of balance I, I don't prefer that definition, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think we are in balance when we're in sattva, but I think it's the removal of rajas and tamas, not somewhere in the middle of rajas and tamas. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, no. So it's um, maybe a return to an original state of some kind? I, I believe that. I feel when we unpeel the misperceptions and the image and the ego identification and the aversions and the attachments and the fear, when we remove that or pacify that, we are left with who we truly are. And that's what I think sattva is, is just peeling all that stuff off so you can remember who you really are. Mm. So would it be accurate to say that um, the mm, purusha, the quality of purusha is sattva? Yes, very much so that there are, you know, your mind has many different ways of being from what we call the manas mind, which is very connected to the external world and all the sensory objects, and then coming back, 
you know, closer to what we call the, the asmita mind, which is I, me, mine, you know, survival mind. And then we move further back and we get to the buddhi mind where you're a little bit closer to, hmm, I kind of remember who I was. <laughs> and then we go back to, you know, the, the pratyaya mind, which is this fluid, clear mind that, um, you know, can be very present all the way back to a sattvic mind, which is closest to Purusha. So, you know, the the goal of our yoga is to take ourselves from manas kind of back through that that chain, back through the uh, asmita and the buddhi and the um, pratyaya and, and get back to having our minds simply reflect the truth of who we are. Mm. Would you say that, um, could we correlate rajas and tamas with yin-yang, like active passive principles and those qualities that are associated with yin-yang? I, I think we can. I think it's a great analogy. And then sattva is that tiny line that's between yeah. the yin and the yang. And, and that's a very hard line to find, you know? Yeah, it's a very uh, delicate uh, tightrope to walk or something. <laughs> You're going to, um, yeah. <laughs> it's very <laughs> difficult to, to remain there. Um, so do you think that's the goal? Like, I mean, is that even realistic for people to always be in a sattvic state or is it always a matter of like noticing and correcting, responding? That's what we teach in the optimal state is that staying in sattva as a householder is nearly impossible. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to do that. You let's just say impossible. Okay. (laughs) It's impossible. I agree. But noticing, excuse me. But noticing when I'm starting to get out of balance and knowing what to do to bring myself back towards sattva, that's really what I'm interested in is not how we're going to stay there because as we said, it's impossible. But do I notice like, Amy, you probably don't need any more coffee this morning, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Or, wow, I'm feeling really lethargic today instead of melting into my couch, I think I'm going to go out for a hike, even though I don't feel like it. Right. Mm. So just noticing when we're getting out of balance in a certain direction and then taking action to pull ourselves back closer to balance. Mm. Do you think, um, is it useful to, to maybe simplify things for people and say like, and make a correlation between something like, let's say anxiety and a rajasic state and depression and a tamasic state. Is that just overly simplifying it or is that making it relatable to people so they can start to get a grasp of what it feels like to be out of balance? I think that's a first step. Um, but, you know, going back to the yin-yang analogy, within yang, there is the little dot of yin. And within, you know, you, you see the opposite in there. So in a very, very simplistic way, yes, depression is correlated with tama, uh, being tamasic and um, anxiety more rajas. But when we actually get to the cause of why am I uh, depressed, is it because I am lethargic and sedentary and truly have this, these he- really heavy qualities that I've cultivated over a period of time through my lifestyle choices? Or am I depressed because I've been in Rajas for so long 
that I've completely depleted myself and now there's no juice left and I've fallen down into Thomas. And for me, those are two very different types of depression. How I'm going to work with someone who has the sedentary lethargic blues type of depression is a totally different practice than somebody who's depleted and basically, you know, fallen into depression because they have nothing left to give. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And just as you're talking about how it's a lot like the yin yang, where there's a, there's like a drop of the opposite in it, that kind of thing. Thinking about depression where I think uh, sometimes, you know, I've felt this where maybe my body feels really heavy or I feel quite unmotivated, but my mind is actually really overactive and overthinking things. And that seems to send me into more of like a shutdown type state. And I really have to work to get myself out of that. So there's that like, there's an active, maybe mental energy going on, but in the body feeling like really heavy and just unmotivated. See, this is why I love the KYM tradition though. We have very specific things we would do for someone that had really heavy somatic feelings, but a lot of agitation in the mind. And we would target the practice for how do we soothe and pacify the mind, but move the body. And, you know, there's a technique you've probably learned also called Angalaghavan, where you do all the movements only on exhale, and every inhale is a a place of stillness. So I just love that they have somehow, Krishnamacharya and and family have come up with these really amazing techniques that can address the different parts of our system simultaneously. Mm. That's a new one to me, actually. The Angalangala. How do you say that? It's it's a lightness of the limbs. They also use it for weight loss. <laughs> um, but yeah, I could. I think I have a, a YouTube video of it. I could send you if you are interested. Oh, great! Well, and I think maybe some of the people listening to would like to see some of this in action. Yeah, yeah. I teach it to my college students. They love it, and it just soothes their mind. And it is still a hard workout for their body. Great. So um, we talked a little bit, uh, I mean, we've kind of talked about optimal state yoga training. I'm interested if you could speak about how you've brought what you learned in India back to America and created a a business from it. And so if you could talk a bit about your business and uh, how you're engaging with the world these days. You know, I'm going to just say I'm a very lonely solopreneur. Uh, My husband and I do it together, so I'm not really solo, but I feel like I don't fit in anywhere. Uh, If you'd ask the Indians, I'm probably not doing it quite perfectly enough in terms of tradition and, you know, just really making sure that I um, protect the teachings perfectly. But when you talk to the Western people that I work with here at California State University for 23 years, the physiologist, the kinesiologist, the biomechanist, they think I'm this crazy yoga girl. <laughs> mm. Like, who is this lady with the chanting <laughs> in her office? And, uh, you know, so I, I'm like this unicorn and I, I don't fit anywhere. Mm. But I really can't be anything but who I am and how I have emerged. I, I, I'm incapable of trying to please another and not be true to myself. It's, it's always been something in me that I just can't do. So I'm a, a lonely unicorn and 
what my plan has been is to uh, recruit other lonely unicorns who are also (laughs) very interested in this bridge, like standing on the bridge in the middle where you understand the Western science, you can talk about it, you, you know the muscles of the body, you understand psychology, and you can turn around on the bridge and have a total conversation about Sanskrit and chanting and Bhagavad Gita, and you can chant the, you know, the Yoga Sutras word by word, all four chapters. Like, I really, I like to be able to flip it and go that direction too. And so whoever I talk to, I I can talk their language. And then I'm the person standing on the bridge in the middle, basically translating for the two teams. Hmm. And so when I developed Optimal State, that was my goal, is to be able to talk to both sides and let the other one know what, what the other team is thinking or talking about, and then training people to do the same. Because I, I do honor the teachings, and I do feel like we should not be culturally appropriating this information and pretending we came up with it. And, and we need to give honor to India and to the teachings. And there's a lot of people here in the West that can't completely understand them in the most extreme traditional sense. So mm-hmm. that that's really my goal. And, you know, I just said to a girlfriend the other day, like, should I stop this? Am I crazy? What am I thinking? It's too hard <laughs> because it does feel like a very lonely place. And so if you're listening and you're a unicorn, contact me. <laughs> I want to know you. <laughs> uh, you know, I really relate to that. Um, I was talking to someone yesterday who described himself as a recovering Ashtangi and uh, Ashtanga Vinyasa, the Patabi Joyce system. And, you know, one of the things we were, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that we were talking about was uh, missing the kind of community that forms around a shared practice like that. And how that's something that I think we all really long for and that we're missing in the West now that, you know, people aren't gathering in the churches as much. Um, and when you start to get into this other stream of the lineage, like the Desikachar stream, where it is all about uh, adapting yoga to the individual, uh, it's more focused on one-to-one work, although we can adapt to a group situation as well. But like in some sense, we're then all doing our own practice alone. And where's the opportunity for us to come together? Um, and that's something that I've struggled with too, feeling like a bit of a, you know, I describe myself as a lone wolf and I've often thought about creating a lone wolf club, which is kind of paradoxical or ironic or something that, you know, we're all kind of like independent people, but we still need communitas. Like we still need to get together and uh, share things that we're learning or interested in. Um, well, so, can I ask? Yeah. Are unicorns invited to the lone wolf club? <laughs> I think you, um. unicorns would be totally invited as well. And like for me, it's like like you said, just not being able to kind of conform to one particular approach or something because it's more accepted or mainstream or popular. It's like you do yoga enough and you can't help but just be yourself. Right. It's right. like where we started with this, getting to that original state or 
uh, getting closer to our soul, allowing the soul to express more and more as everything else starts to fall away, all the conditioning. And at the end of the day, you're kind of left as a unique individual. And that can feel maybe lonely in a world that wants us to pick a team right. and, and wear the team colors and conform, conform, conform. Um, and I guess for me, it's just a, a bit of a different blend. You know, For me, it's maybe more of a blend of yoga, psychology, and shamanism. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I find that there's not a lot of people who share interest in those things in the kind of depth that that I want to go to, right? Um, you know, like the full picture of yoga, because within that is everything. And wow, like psychology really helps my Western mind understand my makeup, but it also helps me understand the concepts that are presented in yoga, especially Patanjali. It, you know, and so people like you, I think, are really important who are helping to bridge the worlds and help with that communication because. There's a lot of stuff in yoga that is really, really useful to us today. And that is like some kind of crazy miracle or an affirmation that we're not so different than we've always been. Like we're still dealing with a lot of the same essential issues, right? Exactly. I mean, when you look at, you know, just say, for example, the four symptoms of suffering that Patanjali maps out in the sutras, you know, that you may have um, dukkha, this contraction or feeling in your heart. You may have daumanasya, like a, a very negative, dark, heavy mind. You may have angamejayata, you know, physiological agitations in the body. You may have shvasa, prashvasa, that holding after inhale kind of thing going on when you're walking around all rigid. I mean, how long ago was that created? And yet it's still so true for my college students today. I mean, that's remarkable to me. I know. And like Patanjali codified that stuff before social media, before the internet, before all these other things that we uh, kind of point to as the causes of our suffering as modern people. It's like, well, no wonder we're suffering. We've got Facebook and Instagram and all this like comparison and competition and distraction and all this stuff. I go, well, look. This was written like somewhere around 2000 years ago. And they're talking about all these things now that we're recognizing as like symptoms of trauma and all that, like trembling of the limbs, disturbed breathing. He said dark thoughts and, and a feeling of, yeah, feeling uh, constricted or discontented, like at a fundamental level, dukkha. And it's incredible. So the practices are that Patanjali offers and that Krishnamachari and Deskachar offered are in response to these symptoms of being a human being in any time, any place. Like it's something that we share. And so how can we make use of these practices that are already there and have been developed to such a refined level? We need people to translate them, right? And to make them relevant. Well, I think we do. And that's, you know, that's my goal. And I, I have received a lot of pushback, honestly. Hmm. Um, people who are concerned that in the translation, there's cultural misappropriation happening and wanting to make sure credit is given where this is from and don't whitewash it. And, and I agree with all that. I, I think it's very important that we do not disconnect the tree from its roots. 
And as Deskachar taught us, we have to put it in a language that the person who's sitting in front of us can understand and that we are given permission and actually instructed to do that, to look at this human being and say, how can they best comprehend and take in this information and, and use it in their lives in a very practical way? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a tough, tough road to walk and figure out where that line is, where you're being true to the teachings and giving honor and saying, yeah, my college students tend to understand the red, white, blue, gold zone system better than Vata, Pitta, Kapha, Sattva. Mm-hmm. Those words never made sense to them. Yeah. And I think, you know, like translating the language into something that we can easily communicate and people can more easily understand. That to me just makes sense. I think the only time we run the risk of cultural misappropriation is when we kind of like cherry pick things from the tradition that um, that we're comfortable with and we leave out the stuff that we're uncomfortable with. And so something that comes up for me and something I've been trying to, like I've just been kind of doing my own inquiry around it. Um, is in the Yoga Sutra, we've got this concept of brahmacharya. And stuff that's been happening in the yoga scene has really got me reflecting on this again. And what I've been trying to do is get down to the root of it, like looking at that word, which is often translated as celibacy or sexual continence, something like that. And people would say, well, that's because Patanjali was prescribing an aesthetic lifestyle where you're giving up uh, sex and, and things like that. It's not for householders. It's for renunciates is often the argument that's made. Um, and so I'm going, okay, well, what actually does the word say? Because I find that's the most interesting thing to do with Sanskrit. It's like, look at what the word actually means at its root. And I'm interested before I give you my theory of how you deal with a concept like that. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I'll just tell you what I have come to after years of reflection on this very same topic. Um, The, I just think of it as in service of Brahma, that if we are making love and in a relationship where both parties have equal power and are in agreement and are loving each other in the highest form of um, honoring the divine, I, I, I think it's okay that we're having sex as yogis. <laughs> mm. Now, if I'm using my power differential to manipulate people and control people and um, get them to do things with me that um, are not in their highest good, are not in the the spirit of Brahma, then I don't actually think that's a very good thing. So, you know, some people may call that too rigid. Some people may say that's not rigid enough. But for me, I I truly believe that... um, it's it should be in service of the the higher good of all parties involved long term not just in that moment mm. yeah i guess i've been thinking about it like 
in context of where it shows up in the yamas and niyamas. And thinking about, okay, what does that word actually mean? We've got Brahma, which is like the absolute, another name for God maybe, um, but maybe a bigger idea of God than we sometimes have in the West, you know, one that includes everything. And Acharya, which I guess I understand to be like as it's applied to names like Krishna Macharya, someone who knows or teaches through their lived experience is the way I understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So when I put those words together, um, what I get maybe is someone who's on a path to knowing God, something like that, or someone who's living a life in accordance with this higher goal of really um, understanding life on its like deepest levels, like the spiritual path, maybe we yeah. could say. Now, I don't know how that directly applies to sex, if that was something that came up in the commentaries, because it there's no mention of sex in the word, right? So it must yeah. be an interpretation. I think it, you're, it, it, maybe it's that your your love is to the divine your commitment is to the divine your instead of you know this human thing that we we do together to satisfy ourselves temporarily i'm not sure just guessing mm. yeah <laughs> well i think it's a curious thing and i mean it's something like in in me wanting to be true to the tradition is really like uh, trying to understand all these concepts and not just kind of brush it aside or interpret it in a way that really isn't accurate but makes me feel more comfortable. Um, you know, like so brahmacharyas, then people say, well, it just means to be um, like monogamous or something. And so people have all kinds of different interpretations that I think are based more on their comfort level with the idea of celibacy or whatever it actually means. I don't know. Yeah, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of um, just suggest that is it possible that just like the Bible, it was translated by different people at different times with different agendas, and and what we're actually seeing today is this culmination of thousands of years of people saying or projecting onto it what they think it is. So in some mm. sense, I know this is going to be controversial, but in some sense, maybe I do want to cherry pick a little bit here and there because I don't actually agree with what all these thousands of years of commentators have decided it means. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I same with the Catholic Church, you know, there's no, uh, you can't have sexual intercourse except for procreation. There is no recreation. Like, okay, most of the Catholics I know are not down with that, right? Mm, yeah. And so, you know, is that cherry picking or is that just the reality of we're not going to be so dogmatic all the time in every single moment? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess like for me, it's it's kind of like what you're saying is that there's been these uh, commentaries over the years and everyone bringing their own agenda to them. Uh, some of them are quite a religious agenda, you know, people who are promoting that uh, 
renunciate lifestyle. You know, they're not talking to householders here. So are they overlaying their own interpretation on what Patanjali was actually pointing toward, which was maybe something like we could say brahmacharya is being in service of the highest good or something. Um, so as that applies to sex, I think, well, I just, I could look at the yamas and think about those in terms of sex as a whole. So uh, non-harming, honesty, non-grasping, you know, like not coveting and, and, and those kind of things that are laid out there. And so think about it more holistically. Like if I'm looking at the topic of my sexual relationships, well, how do all of the, the yamas apply to that? Right. And that's what Jessica Char taught actually, hmm. that especially ahimsa is the foundation for all the other yamas and niyamas. And that's why it comes first. So in every one of those other ones that you look at, you look at it through the lens of ahimsa. Mm-hmm. So always coming back to uh, non-harming and reflecting on, am I causing harm in right. my actions? Yeah. Okay, I don't know how we ended up there, Amy. I don't but... either. It was so such a great detour. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad we went there. Um, but, you know, we were talking about polyvagal theory and all that. But <laughs> Wow, glad... how do we bring this back? Well, I'm glad we covered that too. And, you know, it's just like it's where our conversation led us as, um, as practitioners at, at this kind of stage in our life and, and dealing with uh, some of the issues that are coming up in the world now around yoga. Well, you know, another one, I don't know how much more time we have, but the the thing that really is hard for me to grapple with is the idea of trauma-informed yoga and yoga therapy versus the way that yoga has been taught for thousands of years with a guru and with um, a power differential and hierarchy and caste system. And I mean, it it literally just makes my my head explode because mm. i i have a really hard time figuring out how i can honor the teachings and yet say yeah i'm not really into the hierarchy and the guru thing and and i actually believe in trauma informed yoga and that we have to make people feel safe and secure and and it's almost, you know, opposites of one another. So those those kinds of things are what I spend a whole lot of time thinking about. I don't know about you. Mm. Well, I definitely think about, um, you know, as a as a teacher, how to teach in a way that honors each individual person who's in front of me. Um, teaching in a way that doesn't put myself on a platform as some kind of ideal to aspire to. Uh, I try not to teach in a way that's authoritative and dogmatic. Um, and I don't know, like I, I look at the way the teachers that have helped me the most and the way they've related to me when I was learning. Um, I look at the teachers who I see as problematic. So I learn from them as well, maybe learning what not to do. And the, and seeing the kind of problems that that type of uh, authoritarian, dogmatic, um, somatically dominant, all of these things that we're starting to pay attention to, how that negatively 
affects people. Um, so I don't know what that has to do with how things were done traditionally or not. All I know is how, you know, I was taught what I can learn from those teachers. I look to uh, Deskachar especially as a, as a model of how to teach in a way that's really um, integral and responsible. Um, yeah, but in terms of the whole guru thing, I think, I don't know, I just feel like we're over that. Like we've outgrown that whole uh, I think we as Westerners Hmm. But I don't, you know, when I travel around the world to different yoga conferences, it's alive and well outside the U.S. Yeah, I know it's alive and well, but is it still working for people, you know? Oh, I don't, no, I don't think it is. Yeah. And I think there's kind of a culture clash right now. Mm. And, and the people who have grown up in a culture that has a little bit uh, more dogma and a little bit more hierarchy and they, and like that, subservience to authority, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's a part of who they are cellularly, and mm. they honor that and value that and see the good things that can come from that. So when you crash in as an American and you're like, oh, we're all about trauma informed and no dogma and don't give away your power and use your somatic experience to direct yourself, and they're kind of like, what? <laughs> What mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Like it, it there really is a, a culture cr- clash going mm-hmm. on, and I think you know if we stay in our bubble in a, in the United States, we don't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think there's other this other thing that happens right in um, response to a lot of the issues that arise with that more maybe traditional way of of teaching. Um, is that the pendulum ends up swinging all the way to the other side? to the point where I think a lot of younger people aren't trusting any authority um, that people are unwilling to be in any relationship where there is a, a hierarchy of any kind, like even a hierarchy based on experience and knowledge. Right. Like, like that's just the reality. Some people have been around longer. They've been studying and practicing more. So they maybe know some stuff that could be useful to you. And, um, so maybe at that point it's, it's good to just like, to listen to them and to respect their experience and their knowledge that they've accumulated over years and like humble yourself to that or something or be open to it. But I think like what often happens now is that people are saying, well, you know what, we don't need any teachers. We've got access to all the information that we need. It's like the the internet has leveled the playing field and we can kind of make up our own thing. But what I'm starting to see with these younger people who have had access to all these different spiritual practices, like there's no barriers anymore. Like everything's available is they're starting to feel a little lost, mm-hmm. you know, like they've got all of this stuff at their fingertips. It's like they're in the spiritual supermarket. And even in terms of like the doors opening up on psychology and psychotherapy, people are hearing about all of these different ideas and concepts on Instagram. There's Instagram psychotherapists who are doing all of this like education around stuff like polyvagal theory and, and trauma. And people are, have access to all this information, but I don't know how much um, they're able to actually apply it to their life. Like, I wonder if, if it's just a lot of like information gathering and uh, there's maybe not enough guidance 
uh, into how to like really apply it and how it, how to make it relevant to your life. Cause I mean, I get people coming to my workshops who, who say this, who go, you know what, I've gone to like so many different yoga trainings and there's all this stuff now. And like, I've done Reiki trainings, yoga trainings, trauma informed stuff, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, I don't actually kn- know how it should work in my life. Like, I don't know how to develop a practice for myself that feels coherent and makes sense. It's like, there's too much choice, not enough guidance or something. I don't know. I completely agree. And, you know, I have students that I'm giving a lecture and they're so busy making sure that their notebook is properly tabulated and, and, you know, they've downloaded the audio file and they have it in the perfect Dropbox that they literally are not being with me Mm. in the moment as I'm trying to convey a precious teaching because they're so worried about grasping on to this notebook or this Dropbox link or something that they want to make sure they have for later. Does that make sense? Yeah. This happens all the time. I'm like, I see it too. Yeah. (laughs) Pay attention. I'm here. I'm with you. Let's, let's be together right now. You know? Yeah. It's like they want to make sure that they capture all of the information and to a point where they're not actually able to be present and receive the thing that's transmitted on a more subtle level. Mm-hmm. Right? And, like an experience together. Yeah, like being with you somatically in the room. And there's something that happens when we're together in a room. If the new theories about like the polyvagal theory and all that have taught us anything, it's that there's uh communication happening on a deeper level when we're together. Neuroception, <laughs> yeah. you know. But if your yeah. head's head stuck in your laptop making notes or you're worried about uh, your phone getting the recording of the person talking and you're thinking about you know, how you're going to upload that and then share it to the Facebook group and all this stuff later, you're not actually being there and receiving uh, these other things, which is how we've kind of learned from each other for thousands and thousands of years is kind of through osmosis, through uh, picking up on body language and um, uh, like regulating each other's nervous systems by breathing together and being together, right? Yeah, you know, Deskachar used to do this thing where you would get mad because he thought we were in our notebooks too much. Like we'd be head down, like scratching notes for hours. And all of a sudden he would get all angry at us and be like, put the notes away, no more notes for three days. And, and we'd <laughs> literally, we'd have to sit there for 10 hours a day, listening, being present, connecting, having mirror neurons and not being able to write any of this juicy, amazing information down. And it would drive us crazy. We would just be like, we came all the way to India and we can't take notes. Are you kidding? <laughs> but that was his way of saying like, don't get caught up in those notebooks. Mm-hmm. be here now yeah i was with a teacher once who said you're writing things down just so you can forget them well i tell you brian i have three and four inch notebooks a whole shelf full of them from kym i haven't i haven't opened them in years you don't go back and learn that stuff out of the notebook you don't no, no but if you're actually there not making notes listening picking up on things on a subtle level, you retain stuff that, you know, I find when I'm doing my practice, these like teacher's voices will come to me as I'm doing my practice. It's like, 
oh my God, where did that come from? It's like they're in the room with me and it's getting triggered somatically or something. All these like memories that I've retained and, and like without even thinking about it, you know, it's like, it's, I think that's it's, exactly what's happening. Yeah. I think uh, so you, you had a somatic experience at one time with this teacher and the words, you know, came across the room vibrationally and, and entered into your body. And now you're doing a somatic practice and suddenly that's released again, that fragrance from that original flower. Yeah, I've never actually like really thought about it too much until this moment, but you know, we talk a lot about how we store trauma in the body, but we don't I think maybe talk enough about how we store positive experiences, like how we store love in the body and how that can also be released as we go through our somatic yoga practice, you know, like the only thing I ever hear people talk about is like, we store trauma in the body and you do hip openers and you're going to have an emotional release and all this <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, what about like when I breathe in deeply, open my arms up and I remember, or I hear like a teacher's voice, you know, the first time they ever taught me to do that or something and the kind of generosity and care and love mm -hmm. that accompanies that how that's released in my body. And, you know, I get, yeah, how we stored like the good things in our body too. Yeah, we, I just had a lesson last night and a student said, can a vasana be positive as well as negative? And I think that's- so Vasana is like an imprint. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, it's the, the scent that's left over after the original event and, and they get kind of imprinted printed into our body-mind systems. Mm. And I said, of course, there's so many positive vasanas that are imprinted into you. And it's exactly what I hear you saying right now that, well, why don't we focus on those more too? Yeah. Well, it's in, you know, as I've uh, kind of started learning more about psychology over the past few years, I just found, and then in like the zeitgeist too, you know, with like people being more trauma informed and everything, you know, I guess my biggest criticism of it is that it's often just focused on the negative. And maybe we've lost sight of the the good in us, which is something like coming back to Patanjali and yoga. I feel like it's like Patanjali always keeps his eye on the prize, mm. you know, which is like reconnecting to who you really are at your core, which is this state of sattva. You know, right. the, the soul. Um, so that's something that I've, I always try to uh, keep in focus when I work with people is like, let's keep our eye on the prize here. We can talk about all of the stuff that's gone wrong in our life and how it's negatively impacting us now and all of that. But let's not lose sight of what's there at your core. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of this, the, the bird model from the Upanishads that... The two birds? You know, the, well, it's, it's the, uh, there's five different birds, actually. Mm -hmm. But the deepest, most powerful, potent bird inside of you is that bird who knows joy, who experiences joy, who remembers joy, who is um, wanting to have more joy. And, and I, you know... When I learned that, I'm like, oh my gosh, where's the joy in my life? What am I doing? Here I am working like a crazy woman, you know, in this field of yoga, yoga, and yet I've forgotten the most important bird inside of me, 
which is my joy bird, right? Mm. So it's it's exactly what you're talking about that, you know, it's great to process the trauma, digest it, try to let go of it because we all have it. And also simultaneously, can we cultivate and grow the joy inside of us simultaneously? Mm. And I think this is something that happens to people who are are working in helping professions um, mm-hmm. is that we can kind of get mired in the the heavy stuff, right? Yeah, and I know maybe, I do. And Well, and I think maybe there's a danger to that because if we're so focused on it, maybe it's because like we're so excited about all this new research that's coming out and these new models that are being developed and approaches to working with trauma, like all of that. I see people in the field getting like really excited about all this stuff. It's like, oh, finally, like an answer to some of these issues that we've been noticing, you know. So there's like an excitement to it. So I, I get it. You know, it's a new and exciting thing. You can add it to your tool belt and feel like you've got like something else to draw on to help people. I totally understand that. But I also wonder if some of the danger is that um, by focusing on that stuff so much, we can somehow um, inadvertently help people to identify more with the trauma right which is just another kind of ego problem or identity problem yeah it's an ask me top problem of yeah i am my trauma this happened to me i'm all i will be ruined forever i can never heal you know i, I hear students come and say that that there's no hope for me now mm. yeah and i'm thinking oh no 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 <laughs> there's hope <laughs> so uh, one of the, I mean, how do you how do you work with that when someone comes to you and they've really identified with their trauma story? Well, I think first they need a lot of empathy, and I mm-hmm. give them a lot of empathy, and I allow them that time and space to tell their story and to really have someone hear them and feel them. Because I think until that happens, we can't move forward, and that that could take quite a long time to to keep giving empathy and then training them to give themselves empathy. That's a really important part of that. But then there's a point in time that comes that we're going to decide, do we want to stay where we are? Is that a comfortable place to be in this life? And is that where you want to stay? Or would you like to see if there's um, new, new vistas, new, new ways of perceiving, new ways of thinking and being that might open the door a crack to a different reality for you? And are you willing to, to start moving in that direction? Mm. So, uh, you know, that's, that's why I came up with the optimal state is because, look, there is hope for all of us to get into our optimal state of balance so that we can have more viveka, more clarity, more ability to see the potentials for ourselves. And and move in a new direction, you know, Atta yoga, nushasanam, we, we begin yoga and, and we're hopefully going to go in a new direction that causes us less suffering. Well, I think you just brought us home, Amy. Great. Yeah. Let's- so let's finish with the beginning of the yoga sutra. Um, that's like a beautiful description. Uh, 
Again, thank you so much for spending this time and going on this journey with me. It's the way I kind of like to do it is just show up, get curious and see where it leads us. And I think it led us to some really interesting places today. And I'm just like, uh, I find your perspective really interesting. I love the work that you're doing. And I hear your the difficulty in being a bridge person and I, I love that you're really um, taking all of it into consideration too. So it's just uh, a lot of gratitude to you. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Brian. And I just also want to say that I have always admired your work and kept an eye on you. And and there's never ever been anything that I've saw of you that I wasn't like, wow, he is subtle. He is thoughtful. He is a good communicator. His heart is in the right place. So when you asked if I would be on here, I just felt so honored because I feel like you're really living your yoga every moment. Uh, you're just, you're very refined human being. So I, I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's funny because you've watched me online and I really, I can look back in over the past eight years or whatever it's been since I started teaching see you know all this development right and wow. i know like things are always like shifting for me and i'm thinking about new ways of communicating things as i come to understand things more so for me i look i go the past eight years have been like kind of like a real development and which so, we all have right yeah. oh yeah but through your development you've been thoughtful and and refined that's the, the word that just keeps coming to me you know, we, we all have mistakes. We all go up and down. And, but that, that essence of you from what I see is just a very subtle, refined human trying to do the best he can in any given moment of the day. And I really <laughs> love that. Oh, thank you so much. Now, um, let's do the housekeeping. How do people find out more about you? Where can they follow you to stay up to, bre uh, sure. up to date on what you're doing? Uh, my website is www.amywheeler.com, A-M-Y-W-H-E-E-L-E-R.com. Uh, my Facebook is Amy Wheeler Yoga, but I also have an Optimal State uh, Facebook page. Uh, I have an Instagram account, but I have to tell you I'm not very good at it. So <laughs> um, I'll work on that one, but that's also Amy Wheeler Yoga. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, come find me and, and be a unicorn with me. <laughs> yeah. And just to tell people, you do online training as well, right? I do. I do a lot of stuff online. I'm very uh, into the tech world. My husband and I are coming out with uh, an app to track your mental health um, in a very yogic way that should be out within the next few months. Also will be called Optimal State App. So yeah, I, I love tech. I love being online. I feel like it's a great way to meet a lot of people. Totally. Um, and you're, did I see correctly that you have a retreat center in Southern California? We do. It is so beautiful. Um, we, we love our retreat center. And when you were talking about coming together and actually having a, an experience with other human beings where there's something transmitted through osmosis, the place is magic. When you step into it, you're like, oh, and you kind of drop into this timeless space of 
communion together. It's just a really remark. I think it, it's in like some weird energy vortex <laughs> mm. um, because people really feel different the moment they walk in the door. And, and our retreats are usually about a week. And so they have a, a really great opportunity to kind of de-link from, you know, all the crazy of their lives. Great. Now, something just came to me. I wonder, could that be a venue for a meeting of unicorns and lone wolves? It absolutely could be the unicorn lone wolf hangout. (laughs) Talk to me. Let's do it. (laughs) Well, we're in the middle of a blizzard right now in Montreal. And about this time of year, I get an itch to go to places like Southern California. Okay, we're in. Let's do it next year. Let's let's set a date and we'll have a unicorn wolf meeting. Yeah, I I mean, I think there are so many people like us out there who are uh, who love this lineage but don't feel that sense of communitas because, you know, uh, Deskachar is not here. So there's not that central figure anymore that we can all gather around, you know, like the fire, the tribal fire that we all gather around. So I think it's up to us maybe to step up and to create spaces where we can get together and find nourishment through that connection and challenge each other to examine uh, you know, how we're teaching, where we're taking the lineage, how we're preserving it, all of that stuff, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't see anyone else. I don't see anyone else doing it. So I, I feel like I'm kind of like, I don't know, maybe, uh, stepping up or asking you to work with me. Um, but I don't know. It was something I think I would really benefit from. And I'm sure there's others out there too, who are, who are looking for this kind of thing. Yeah, I I would 100% be in. The only reason I've ever done that is because I don't feel like I'm, um, I, I don't feel like I have enough, uh, I don't know, power, whatever. Like prominence to, to, or something? Yeah, prominence yeah. to be able to call a meeting like that. But if, I know, if, but, other, if yeah. other wolves and unicorns are like, hey, let's do it together. Well, sure, I'm I'm all in for that. Well, and I think that's the new way to do it, that it's not just the most famous of us who says, I'm going to have a gathering around me, right? And they're right, kind of like right. gra- grabbing the ring of power or something, right? Where it's like just people like us who aren't interested in taking that central role um, and then together like organizing and calling on our networks to find the other uh, stray wolves and unicorns out there who are <laughs> looking for uh, kinship, you know? Yeah. Okay, we're we're gonna do this. All right, we're, we're gonna we're gonna plan something, and I'm gonna invite you and other lone wolves and unicorns from the Desi Guitar tradition. Yeah, and I'm gonna leave this in the podcast so anyone listening who this is like making the hair on their arms stand up because that's what I'm getting right now. Um, just the, the potential of this happening and the excitement around that. So let us know. Uh, Get in touch with Amy or myself and let us know if this is something you might be interested in. And we'll look at maybe um, winter 2020 or 2021. Yeah. I I mean, the the dates are are wide open and I could even fathom like two weekends a year, depending if you can't make one, maybe you can Mm. make the other kind of thing. And um that was my original plan that I'd have like a winter retreat and a, a, you know, fall retreat or something like that where people could come and, and nourish themselves and, and rejuvenate, but also, you know, be with other like-minded people in our tradition. So 
let's do it. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. I'm going to let you go. Thank you, Brian. Have a great day and I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Amy Wheeler. And just a reminder that if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, subscriptions start at just $2 a month, which gives you access to the complete podcast archives, exclusive bonus episodes, podcast extras, yoga resources, and a lot more. Please go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash medicine path to learn more. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until the next time we meet on the medicine path. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 